Amen. Well, good morning. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Okay, two good mornings. All right. Good. Hi. Good to see you. We're going to stay in Nehemiah 2, so if you're there already, great. Uh, If you're not, you can turn there. If you'd like a Bible, there's one on the seat either underneath you or in front of you. Last week, or not last week, it might have been two weeks ago, our scripture reading right before the message was out of Jeremiah 29. And there's like 29.11, super popular, and and people memorize that. But this verse in Jeremiah 29.7, and we're not going to put this up. I was just thinking of it as as I was listening to the reading. It says, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on behalf, on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. As the exiles from Jerusalem have been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and pushed out into exile, the the very thing we studied in the book of Daniel. As they are exiled in other cities, they'd been taken captive and enslaved in other communities. The prophets speak to them and tell them, listen, pray for and seek the welfare of the communities that you're in. Pray for them. In their welfare, you'll find your welfare. Right? This was probably the first church verse that we had when we started this church in Los Alamitos. When we just got generations going, it was, we were super embedded in the city. We got to serve with the city all the time, fund a bunch of events that they did, do all kinds of things. And it was this constant reminder that we are in this city for a purpose. As we moved to Cerritos about three years ago, uh, Los Al, Orange County, very different than Cerritos in L.A. County, and this master-planned community that Cerritos boasts to be, is just very different. And we didn't find all the same relationships. And then as we remodeled and opened, we opened just in time, like six months before the shutdown of COVID, right? And so... Finding our same connection to the community that we're in has yet to happen. Hasn't changed that that's who God has created us to be, but it reminds us that God has placed us in a specific place for a specific reason, that he desires to use us. And so this relates to us as a church here in Cerritos or Norwalk, Cypress, Los Al, Greater Long Beach area, wherever you want to consider our community. But it relates to us also in our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces. Doesn't matter if your community is Valley Christian or if it's your workplace. If you live in La Mirada or Huntington Beach, it doesn't really matter. But God has placed us where we are with a purpose, right? I'm going to see some of that today. I'm going to give you a main idea. We'll put this on the screen. I'm going to talk about our calling collectively. Jesus calls the church. That's us. That's all of us. I don't want you to think that's just some of us, right? That's all of us. To be his witness in the world. We not only respond by being the people that he calls us to be, so we become the people he's called us to be, but we also do the work that he's called us to do. So we fulfill this mission by being the people he has called us to be and by doing the work that he's called us to do. Not one or the other, not a lack of both, but both. We become someone new in Christ. And then we set to do the work that he has called us to do in the world for as long as we have that opportunity. So Nehemiah chapter two, that's where we're gonna begin today, starting in verse nine, the the part we just read together. Nehemiah says, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now, the king had sent me with officers in the army and horsemen. So where we left off last week, Nehemiah begins in Susa, the capital of Babylon, 
He's cupbearer to the king. He's got a great job, a great position. But his brother Hanani returns from Jerusalem where they have been for decades now, right? And they've been back there and their, their original task under Zerubbabel who led the first wave of returning exiles back, their task was to rebuild the temple. And that was not only a physical task, but it was a metaphor for them rebuilding their faith. As many of them had lost touch with their practice of faith through the exile. Kind of like we sometimes lose touch with our practice of faith, maybe our relationship to a church during COVID, right? Like there's times where you're removed from something and you lose practice, you lose your habit, or you lose what you do. And so just like that, as they were exiled, a lot of them lost their practice of their faith, keeping Passover or remembering the law or whatever. And so as they're rebuilding the temple, kind of building a church, right? It's a reminder, it's an image and a metaphor of teaching them about rebuilding their faith. And so then Ezra brings the second wave of returning exiles. And as he returns, his focus is on the people rebuilding their homes, settling into the city that they live or the surrounding villages and communities that they live in. And the image of rebuilding their homes is all about them rebuilding that core unit of relationships that you have outside the church, right? Outside their faith community, that core relationship is the family. And so reminding them to prioritize faith over everything else in their family. And so calling their families and their, their fathers and mothers and, and just families back to that embedded kind of ingrained faith as a priority, and then last week, as we talked about Nehemiah, this call of Nehemiah, or this call of God on Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to help rebuild the city. And this is all about them rebuilding their community. And for the most part, rebuilding their community is rebuilding the people inside the walls, right? So for us, rebuilding the community is rebuilding the church. But for us, the church exists in a community, be that the city that we're in or kind of that greater Long Beach, LAOC kind of border kind of thing, right? And so not only do we rebuild the community of faith, but we also remember that we're embedded in a city, that we live in neighborhoods, that we go to schools or jobs. And then as we rebuild that, we remember our role in the world that God has planted us in, that Jesus has placed us in. We've read verses like, seek the welfare of the city, for in its welfare you will find your wealth. We've read verses like, you're saved by grace through faith, to do the works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. Right? We've read all this, we've pressed into this, and now today, Nehemiah has, is returning to Jerusalem. We saw this call last week, we saw his prayer last week, his fasting last week, we saw the king give him incredible benefit by sending him and paying for his journey and giving him letters to protect him from the other people around that he would have to pass through. And so he leaves there, headed towards Jerusalem with these officers and army and horsemen that he's with, with these letters to get him through there. And he heads to Jerusalem. Verse 10. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So Tobiah the Ammonite, right, or Sanballat the Horonite, who they are, 
are non-Jewish people. They've been the problem all along. There's the province beyond the water, right, that we've been talking about, the surrounding community that's oppressed them and opposed them at every step. We saw that under Zerubbabel. In fact, they stopped work on the temple for about 20 years just by pressure around them, never by edict of the king, but by pressure of people who didn't want them to succeed. And so again, as the Jewish community, as the people of Jerusalem are rebuilding, as they're beginning to kind of rally towards something, the the, the people around them know that something is coming, it's going to be for their better, and they don't like it. It's a great contrast of who the world is and who we are supposed to be, right? We are supposed to be those who seek the welfare of the community that we're in and pray for it, to buy homes and raise families and whatever it says, right? That there's that, that we, that we find our welfare, our betterment when the community is better. And then there's the view of the world who doesn't want to see the people of God succeed. It should be a contrast for us. It isn't always. The church isn't always seeking the welfare of the city they're in, right? But it should be that we live in a way that is different than the world that we're in. Verse 11, Nehemiah says, So I went to Jerusalem... And I was there three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. So Nehemiah actually arrives in Jerusalem. He spends three days in Jerusalem not telling anyone what God has placed in his heart. Verse 13. It says, I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and the gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night in the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. So what does Nehemiah do on his first three days in Jerusalem? Well, he actually scouts out the city, right? He goes and he inspects the walls, but he goes out at night. He doesn't tell other people. He doesn't take a big entourage. What he does, he jumps on whatever he's riding, a horse or whatever he's riding, right? He does that and he goes about and he's inspecting the walls and the gates and everything that's been going on. And and remember, that's what motivated him to begin with. Last week, when he asked his brother Hanani how things are going, Hanani relays to him and says, listen, well, the walls are all broken down. The gates are all destroyed by fire. The city lies in ruins, really, and like kind of the subtext is nobody's doing anything about it. And it breaks Nehemiah's heart. And what we see is God engage with Nehemiah in that moment and really break his heart for the city for Jerusalem, for a specific aspect of it. And again, what the wall would do is it provides them a level of, int- uh, of protection. Without the city, you're hard pressed, I mean, without the wall, you're hard pressed to really be a city. And this is a time when, when people would sneak in at night and, and people were left vulnerable. People could come in out of the villages, out of like the covered areas, and they would come in, they'd sneak in, and, and they would do bad things. And, and in the same way, People that were doing wrong things that were in the city would leave and come in and and kind of go in undetected at night. And and what cities had in these days, just go back, watch any movie like this, and there were these giant walls. They were super thick. They were near impregnable. They were hard to get through or over or around, and they would fully encompass the city. And then the weak points, of course, were the wooden gates and bridges uh, and doors and things like that. And so the wall was really hard to get by. 
And so their wall had been destroyed as it had been beaten and beaten down over and over again by the cities that sacked them after they were captured. And they had burned all the gates down and now their city is insecure, right? Now their city is not safe. And they've been back now for decades. And what we're finding is the city is still not safe and they haven't had a sense of community. Yes, they began by rebuilding their faith. Yes, Ezra then, just prior to Nehemiah, begins to focus on them rebuilding their homes and that sense of faith must come first in the family. But now Nehemiah is tasked with the job of providing a sense of community, providing a sense of something that is larger than we are. It can't just be when I close my doors tonight, it can't just be the people inside my house that matter. That's not how we live in our faith. That yes, that there has to be a priority on that. And yes, faith must come first in that home. But then I'm also part of this larger community, whether it be generations or valley or whatever. And so we get to be a part of something larger. Jesus has called us to a community. He's called us to do things together, not individually. Here in America, our Western American faith is very individualistic. We see that play out in many ways. Nehemiah is calling against that and towards something different. So Nehemiah goes out and scouts the area, learns what the community needs. We'll put this up. So learning, do we take the time to understand the needs of our community? What makes our community different than another? How can we, meaning the church, how can we uniquely respond to the needs in our community? And I'm going to use that word over and over again, community today, because I'm not limiting it to city. I'm not limiting it to our church. I'm not limiting it to the valley system itself, right? But our community, the place where God has placed us, right? The various layers or circles of things that God has put us in, do we know the needs? Do we actually, if you go to church here and live here, do we actually know the needs of Cerritos? And do we know how that is any different, maybe, than Los Alamitos or Norwalk, do we know the needs of the community that we've been placed in? When I say needs, what are the spiritual needs? What are the, the physical needs? What are the community needs as God would see them? Might be even as the people would see them. Nehemiah takes his time to learn this, to understand who the community is and what they need. Verse 16. And the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials and the rest who were to do the work. I love this. Listen, and I had not yet told those who were to do the work. Funny. And there's this implicit understanding that it's not just Nehemiah's job, right? It's not Nehemiah's job to fix the walls. It's their job. Collectively, it's the community's job to fix the walls, right? It's not Nehemiah's job. No one man can do this task, right? It is not my job to set the church, to do everything the church is supposed to do, right? As a lead pastor, my job is to kind of figure out what is God saying to us with you, right? In conjunction, especially in the leadership of the elders and, and, and those that, that God has entrusted to us, our staff, our deacons, all of that. But really it's to partner with you to accomplish the task, Nehemiah knows that. Nehemiah goes in with that. And he's learning because he knows he's not quite ready yet. He's not sure what the needs will be. Yeah, the walls are broken down. Yeah, the gates have been burned down. Okay. 
But what else? Let me go look. Let me take the time to actually learn what is necessary here before we start talking to the officials, before we start telling the people whose job it will be to do the work. So here's a note for you again. Vision, people, and community. God sends Nehemiah to call God's people to rebuild their community. When God has a plan for us, it always includes our participation as a part of the solution. God calls Nehemiah maybe to be the tip of the spear, right? Maybe to be the one who goes in and learns and points out what's going on. But it's not his job to go fix every gate. It's not his job to go rebuild all the wall. It's his job to rally the people to what God has for them. It's their community. It's their city. It's their wall. This is our church. It's our school. It's your workplace. It's your neighborhood. I live in my neighborhood. And I need to have some responsibility for that. And that we can see the places that God has put us, not as something abstract or as something that we have done, or something that happened maybe before we came to faith, or maybe something that our parents bought a home in this neighborhood that we didn't really choose, but rather to know that God is sovereign, to know that God is bigger than all that, that God placed you in that setting for a purpose, and to know that that purpose, whatever it might be, the job that we do collectively takes all of us, that it's all of our job, it's going to require all of us to participate. Probably the thing that makes the church, any church, our church, church down the street, any church, probably the thing that makes it least healthy is that only a percentage of the people contribute. Could be financially, could be serving, could be anything, could be leadership. But the fact that there are so many gifted people in any church that can do all kinds of things that are able bodies and hands and hearts and, and whatever else it might be, that don't contribute means that that church goes without those strengths, abilities. And that's true of any community that we're in. If we're in our neighborhood, the neighborhood I live in should be better because I live in it, because I should care about it. The church that I, I am in should be better because I contribute to it and you contribute to it. The very class that you guys are with is Justin, you get ready to graduate this year, right? That class, I can speak because I know Justin well, is better because of him, right? That he can choose not, the, he's not the, you know, he's human, just Justin. We're going to put you on the spot now that I've started, right? So, <laughs> but because he contributes to praise, but because he contributes, because he's a part of things, you're an ambassador this year, right? One of them? Because he's bought in, the school is better. The senior class will be better. For the juniors coming up, same thing, right? For you, wherever you go, if your school's not a Christian school, great. Contribute. For your neighborhood, your workplace, whatever it is. It should be better because we're there. And it should be better because we're there and because we know that God has placed us there and that God has designed this so that we could be used. Verse 17. Good, I like that. Somebody's awake. All right, good. <laughs> then I said to them, verse 17, you see the trouble we're in and how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. So there's Nehemiah's call. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, right? You see the problems we have. You see the condition we're in. Let's put a stop to that. We are the answer to that, right? Come, let us build. 
And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. He shared the story of how he got there, how God had moved things and orchestrated things for him. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. Now listen, the, the, the speaker shifts here. And they said, this is the people now say, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. In all of this book, my favorite words are right here as it moves from come let us build as Nehemiah casts that vision for people as he says, listen, let's do this. Let's do this together. Come, let us, let us build. Let us fix the problems. Let us be the solution. Let us go do this. And then it migrates over to the people and they say, let us rise up and build. Now it's we, right? Let us. We hear you. You're right. We need to do that. We can sense that God's been speaking that into our hearts too. Let us do it. Let's get it together. Let us rise up and build. It's going to take effort. It's going to take work, but we can do it together. And it says, and then they strengthen their hands for the good work, right? They set themselves to doing it. When I read this line, and it, and it may just mean they strengthen their hands for the good work is kind of a, a saying in Hebrew, a, a way they would say, so they kind of set themselves to doing it, right? They began or they started a plan or whatever they did. When I see this, what I see inside of it is it takes change, right? When we sense that God is calling us to something, it requires that we adjust our lives, right? If, if we are going to give of ourselves somewhere, right, there's only so many minutes and hours in a day, we probably have to reallocate some of our time or energy or finances or gifts or ability, whatever it is. But it requires us to kind of set our hands towards it, to fix ourselves, to adjust our lives to whatever it is that God is calling us to. And so what they say is, let us rise up and build. Let us do the work. Let's, let's do this, right? Let's go. Like, we want to do this. Like, you're right. Our city is beat up. We want to fix it. We want to be different than we are now. But being different is going to require work and change. Verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, and by the way, wherever Nicole is, I'm making that up. I have no idea how you pronounce these names. I just say it really fast. You think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and guess from the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So what do Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem all have in common? Easy. They're not Jewish. They're other people. An Ammonite, a Horonite, an Arab, right? they're others. But they're weighing in. You see, they're in the city when this conversation is going on. Why are they in the city? Who knows? But I can tell you one thing that's not keeping them out is the walls and the gates and the doors, right? And so there they are inside, and we already heard that their hearts earlier are, are, are irritated. They are irritated because there's something that's going to be for the good of God's people, and they don't like that. It displeases them, and so now they're speaking up, and they're trying to stir up and cause problems. Now, if we just back up for a minute, they shouldn't be there to begin with, but they are, Right? But what happens when they are? If you, fa if you not fast forward, the other thing, you can't go fast backwards. Whatever it is, rewind to Zerubbabel, to the first wave of exiles. Good thing I don't speak for a living or anything, right? So if you back up to the first wave of exiles that return, when this kind of thing happened from the people around them, it stalled out their work for 20 years. 
The prophets began speaking like, who told you guys to quit? Did God tell you guys to stop? Did God tell you your job is done? Like they laid the foundation of the temple, got some pressure from the outside, and they quit. And then they get up and ready. They waste 20 years. Remember that passage where it says they were celebrating when they kind of got it all together, but then a group of the older folks were weeping and mourning. They knew the time they had missed. They knew that none of this ever had to happen. So they learned a lesson there, and Ezra encounters opposition. Now Nehemiah, also the third returning leader, the third wave of exiles returning, he encounters opposition too. Verse 20, then I replied to them, says Nehemiah, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we as servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah says, you don't get a vote. We're going to do this. You're not of us. You're not one of us. This isn't your city. You don't get to tell us what we're going to do. And what we see here, though it's just this little dialogue, it's this little kind of thing that happens in the middle of some really big grand scheme things, what we see is that the people don't stop like they had before. It's kind of like, hey, we made that mistake back here. No, no, we don't want to do that again, right? And their leaders don't want to do that again. And they're like, no, we learned our lesson on that one. You see, the gospel message for us as simple as it is to kind of explain or wrap our heads around it, it's got unending implications in our lives, right? That God loved us so much to create us, design us, create a way that we work best at generation. We just call that being worshipers of God, that God created us to be worshipers of God. And that doesn't mean like what these students are doing today, like singing songs, leading us in songs of worship, though it can be part of that. But it's that our lives would worship God, that we would bring glory to God with everything that we do. That our actions and our words, our, our speech and our, our jobs, the, the places we contribute, that all of that would be worship to God. That our lives would be lived out in such a way that God would be glorified and not ourselves. That we would be worshipers. Now, the bad part of the story enters in, and Adam, and, and sin, and, and we know everything just kind of breaks as sin enters into human history. And if we're just being really honest, or if I'm being really honest, if we'd made it all the way from Adam to me, I'd have blown it. I'd have made the mistake, right? And so not only do we inherit that, we inherit this, this inside brokenness, this internal sense of just broken and, and, and can't get it right. And then we contribute to it, all of us. We contribute to the sin in the world. We add to the brokenness of the world that we live in. And that a part of the curse of sin is that we can't help but add to the brokenness in the world. Try as we may, we can't help but add sin upon sin upon sin. But God won't leave that. And, and that in our sin, as we're running away from God, God loves us so much that God knows we'll, we'll never come back on our own. And so he comes to us. And so God becomes human flesh. Jesus, the son of God, becomes human. Fully God, fully man. Enters into our story and lives the life of worship that we're called to. He does so without flaw, without fail, without sin. He lives the perfect life at every turn. No matter if people are opposing him and causing him problems, or even when his own disciple betrays him, or when the, the Jewish religious elite turn on him and falsely accuse him and falsely condemn him, he remains sinless. 
And he allows the very plan of God, the very plan of redemption to take place. As he is betrayed, falsely accused, falsely condemned, beaten and crucified and dies. Jesus, our Savior, the perfect Son of God, comes in and lives the perfect life and then trades that life for our broken lives. He dies on a cross to forgive our sin. He's, he is laid in the ground to show that he is dead. But the story doesn't stop there because a lot of times our gospel story in our head stops there and we, we thank God and we thank God we're forgiven, but we're not left just forgiven. When we talk about that, like if I just confessed all my sins, we just kind of piled them up. We'd need a bigger table for sure. But if we just piled them up right here, and then Jesus just said, well, I, I forgive you. That's you. What a horrible story. But see, Jesus raises from the dead to give us new life. Jesus ascends back to heaven because he is God. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is seated on the throne and he, he does so that he can pour out his spirit onto believers, his church, to empower us to not be that pile of sin that, we're gonna, that we've, we've identified like that's my best efforts. But that in the gospel, we're no longer defined by our worst choices, but instead we are defined by Christ's righteousness, that we are made new. And then Jesus gives us that hope that, that one day he will set everything right. Now we live here. We live in this place where everything is not right yet, but it will be. And things that are not right in us are being made right being sanctified in Christ. And our job now, because we have been given this free gift when we were running away from God, he went and rescued us and pulled us back in and said, I adopt you, I love you, you're my son, my daughter. Because of that, now we join him in his work. We, the church, get to join Jesus in his mission of the kingdom. And that's where we are in this story. And Jesus was opposed with every step and Jesus faced this kind of opposition, right? And then when all this comes together, we remember ourselves in this and say, okay, well, this has always happened, right? So back to our story, a clear calling to participate. Nehemiah set a plan before Jerusalem where everyone participates. How do we, that means every one of us, again, I'm going to keep saying that, identify our role in what Jesus has for generations today. And if you're our guest here today, great. We love you. If you have a home church, what is your role in your home church? right? What is your role in your community? If you don't have a home church, we would love to have that conversation with you, be that for you. But wherever you are, if you're planted in a home church, then just swap out the word generations for your home church. What is your role in your church? It doesn't change when you leave generations. There's no anything different about that. What's your role in your home church? See, Nehemiah inspires that among the people. They recognize, hey, listen, this is our job, not Nehemiah's job. It's not our pastor's job, it's our job. And so he shows them, listen, here's the vision to participate. And they say, let us rise up and build. And when opposition happens, Nehemiah just pushes aside and says, no, we're not listening to that. We have a job to do. So for us today, how do we participate? How do we understand? If there's a clear sense, and there is both in Nehemiah there is in the gospel that we live here, joining the mission of the kingdom that Jesus began, right? Like the beginning of Acts, Luke, the author says, in my first book, meaning Luke, I wrote what Jesus began to do and teach. And then here, here's the continuance. And then we, 
Like our church planting network, Acts 29, we just find ourselves, we're the next chapter, right? We're just the continuance of the story here. What do we do? How do we identify our role? So we're going to look through a few verses in Nehemiah 3 and answer that. So verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests, and they built the sheep gate. And they consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hanane, or Hananel, Hananel. So here's what's going on. First, what we see is the high priest. Now, this would be functionally the lead pastor of the day, right? He's the guy over the other priest there. And here's what he does. He gets up and he, and he goes to work. He begins rebuilding and restoring the wall. Elijah, the high priest. It doesn't matter that he's the high priest. He's a part of the collective community. Verse 2. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to him, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. Right? And so... Next to him, some men over here started to rebuild. And next to them, some other men, they started to rebuild, right? Verse 3, And the sons of Hassanah that built the fish gate and laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hecaz, repaired. And next to them, Mesholam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And so some are repairing the wall and some are rebuilding the gates and the doors and the things that... that that obviously let them in and out, right? So here's the idea. Everyone worked. And we'll put this up for you. By the way, all these slides are in our app. That part's working. I know the check-in isn't. But uh, everyone rebuilt together, from the high priest to the families. Each did their part. How is Jesus calling you to participate in new ways as part of the church, right? doesn't matter if you have a role in it. What's your role for it? Sometimes we just contribute to the collective whole, right? Sometimes I'll be walking through the parking lot and you see trash. The job is we pick it up, right? Like I just grab it, right? I don't think, well, I'm the lead pastor. That's not my job, right? I think I go to this church and this matters and I, don't, I want our visitors, our guests and people to show up here. I want them to see a clean parking lot, right? I see lots of you do things like that. But it's also our kids over there. Not just your kids, those are our kids over there. They're our responsibility. And, the, and you all are our guests. If we're a, you're a part of this church and, and you're a guest, and, right? So welcoming you, helping you find out where you check your child in or where you sit or where the restrooms are, because that's important, right? That's our job. They're our kids. They're our youth. They're our women. They're our men. They're our guests. And it's our budget, right? We all contribute in ways that don't have to be defined by a job description. Everyone worked. Verse 5, And next to him, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Say that again. You hear that? Their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. So in the gospel, right? It's a beautiful verse in Philippians that talks about how Jesus condescended to humanity. Right? How Jesus lowers himself. He's God who becomes human. Not just human, but a child, a baby, born. Not just born, but born into a broke kind of ghetto family. Right? Nothing wrong with them, but he doesn't come into the king's house. He goes into the neighborhood. Right? And then... The author of life, Jesus, the very words of God in Genesis 1-3, the speech that creates life, dies on a cross. You want to talk about God lowering himself to you, condescending to me, 
He lowered himself to death, death on a cross, one of the most brutal ways history has ever known to execute someone. In Matthew 20, it says this, as the, the disciples are arguing about who's greater and better and, what the, and how the other leaders are, whatever, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, we don't do things the same way. That's how the world does them. We do them differently. Just as the Son of Man came, just as I came to serve you and give my life for you, so is your job as long as you're here. I've secured your forever, so now I get your time. You join my mission, right? Verse 6, Joiah to the son of Hassan and, and Meshulam and the son of I don't know how to say that one either. Repaired the gate of Yeshana, and they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and next to them repaired Melatiah and the Gibeonite and Jada and the Maranathite and the men of Gibeon and Mizpah and the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. People from around the outside villages are also helping, right? Some. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, the goldsmiths repaired. Next to them, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Listen to this. There are goldsmiths and perfumers working on the wall. Right? When, you just, when, when, when there's a need and your first thought is, that's not what I do, just understand that goldsmiths and perfumers are so far out their job description right there, building a wall and repairing gates. Right? Because sometimes we work in our gift set, sometimes we just serve. And we'll put that up. So talents versus needs uh, is another application. We'll put that on the screen. Sometimes we serve in our area of giftedness, but other times we serve a need. Our participation shows that we understand our collective calling and commitment, right? Our just plugging a hole or doing a job or, or just serving a need shows that we understand our collective responsibility for the whole thing, right? We'll wrap up with a couple more verses. Verse 9, next to them... Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired next to them. Jedediah, the son of Harumph, repaired opposite his house next to him. Hattush, the son of Hashpaneah, repaired. Malchijah, all these others. Verse 12, next to him, Shalom, the son of Halalesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Right? Not a culture where women did this. And yet he and his daughters are out there contributing, rebuilding, repairing. Right? Verse 13, we'll close with these two verses. Hanan, the inhabitants of Zenoah, repaired the valley gate. And they rebuilt it and set it on its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. And Malchizer, the son of Rechab, the ruler of the district of Beth Hakaram, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its door, its bolts, and its bars. Some people got the valley gate and the fountain gate, others got the dung gate. Let's just be honest. Some jobs are, we'll just leave the word out, some jobs are just worse than others, right? But they did it. Somebody's got to do it. And they felt the responsibility for the whole thing. And so people pitched in. Whether they were the high priest, or a governor of a small province, whether they were a daughter or a son, whether they were goldsmiths or perfumers, or whether this was right in their sweet spot, gift set, right where they belong. Everybody participated. How will you participate? How will you find your calling, your sense of your responsibility and role inside the community to care for the community? Let's pray.
Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you've given us an opportunity to serve you, to serve your people, to serve your community. We know that you call us to be different. Where others lord it over people, you call us to be servants. Where others wish people wrong, we want the best for them. You have called us to lead the way you led, to serve and to live the way you did, to lay down our lives, the very lives you have given us and have secured for eternity. You call us to lay down the temporary part, the, tar- the part between now and, and either our death or your return. You call us to join the mission of your kingdom, to be you here in the world present today that others might actually see you, meet you, worship you, and give their lives to you. Help us to take that role seriously. Help us to own and feel like this is our community and we are responsible for it, no matter who the we is. Let us be that here in this city, in this county, in these two counties, in this area, in our schools, in our workplaces, our homes, our neighborhoods. Help us to be you to the world, Lord. It's in your name we pray.